Howdy hey, howdy ho, it is your host Madden here coming at you with another episode of The Tick, the podcast of random thoughts that make our minds tick on end, tickle our curiosity, or may downright just tick us off. Let's go. Welcome back listeners. Man, a lot has happened since the last time we chatted. Last week, I had the opportunity to take my mom on a trip of a lifetime to a place I have visited quite often for work over the past few years. I was able to take my mom, an American history buff, to Boston, Massachusetts. This is something I had been wanting to do for several years now. We just didn't know when and how we were going to make it happen. But the opportunity presented itself, and we had about a week's time to prepare So I got to researching and studying how we wanted to do Boston right. So I put us together a pretty epic detailed itinerary. Some days we were staying in one part of town. Other days we were staying in a more historical part of town. We even spent two days in Salem and studied the witch trials. Some days we had public transit. Some days we were real tourists and took the town trolley around where the driver gave us information as he drove along his route. And then some days we had a rental car. So we truly got to see Boston from every aspect. We did a lot of walking and we did a lot of riding. It seemed like every time we typed something into the GPS to figure out how we were gonna get there, everything was 2.1 or 2.4 miles away. And we're like, oh, that's totally walkable. We quickly found out we were wrong because it's totally different from where we're from. So 2.1 miles might be walkable here, but 2.1 miles could be anywhere from 20 minutes, depending on what part of town you're going to, to an hour and 45 minutes. And it could be dangerous depending on the parts of town you're walking through. So we quickly learned how to navigate their public transit system. So while we were on this trip, I knew that there would be tons of curiosities for us to dive into. But what I didn't consider is that they weren't necessarily going to be historical curiosities. The two curiosities we have are more engineering curiosities. And for those that are from or live in the East Coast, these might be common knowledge to you. But for us native Texans who live in the Great Plains and are not surrounded by water, These are something that we are genuinely curious about and we're excited to research when we got back. This week, we have two captivating topics to explore. First up, we'll delve into the incredible history of man-made land creation. And later, we'll venture into the mysterious world of underground tunnels. So let's get started. Our first topic is man-made land creation. Did you know the bustling city of Boston we now know was once a collection of rolling hills? It may be hard to imagine now with its sprawling streets and towering buildings, but Boston's topography underwent a dramatic transformation over the centuries. To learn more about this captivating story, we turn to the article, How Boston Lost Its Hills by Rebecca Brooks, which tells the tale of Boston's ambitious land reclamation projects. In the early 19th century, the city faced a problem. It had limited space for expansion due to its geography, 
with only a narrow peninsula to accommodate its growing population. So, how did Boston overcome this challenge? The answer lies in a process known as filling. Yes, it's that simple of a term. I thought it was something like big, smart engineers would have come up with that would have been big, like three big long words to describe the process, but it's just known as the process of filling. The city began to fill the surrounding marshes and expand its land area by pouring soil, rocks, and other materials into the water. It was a monumental engineering feat that changed the face of Boston forever. The blog article Brooks wrote explains that this process involved dredging mud and silt from the harbor and using it to fill in the marshes. Additionally, hills were leveled and used to fill low-lying areas. So they took the surplus of soil and rock that was that created naturally created the landform of the hills and took that surplus and put it in the marshes to create new land. This process created the new land that extended the city's boundaries. Over time, the land reclamation became more extensive, and Boston's famous Back Bay neighborhood is the prime example of this innovative endeavor. Creation of Back Bay involved a massive undertaking, including the excavation of millions of cubic yards of soil and the construction of a network of streets and buildings on the newly formed land. The result was a stunning neighborhood that exemplifies the ingenuity and determination of Bostonians. As we reflect on the history of man-made land creation in Boston, it is remarkable to consider the lasting impact of these projects. They not only expanded the city's physical boundaries, but also shaped its identity and provided space for continued growth and development. I find this interesting for so many reasons. One day, leaders of the greater Boston area in the early 19th century said, hey, we could really use more land. And so they're like, have no fear, we'll just create some. That's crazy to me. It must have to do with the topography that's there because if we were to try and create more land with the soil we have here in North Texas, we would eventually see foundations crumble and it would not last centuries as it has lasted centuries in Boston. Uh, What else is interesting to me is the level of innovation that was for that time to just take level out land, take the surplus of soil and rock and put it in basically a giant hole to make more land. We also saw this filling process was a continuing theme throughout the region. When we went up into Salem, a similar situation occurred in the early 19th century as well. It wasn't necessarily because they needed more land. It was more because the ports in Salem that they were using for Coast Guard and for trade, really. As technology improved, the ships and boats that were being used for trade changed as well. And what happened was the ports were too narrow and too shallow for these new these new wave ships and boats to come in and drop off their cargo, their loads, their people. So Salem ended up doing the same thing and used the process of filling to fill in to now make their current day bays that are deeper and further out past the shoreline than they were before. When we first learned about this, it made me think about the revolutionary Palm Islands in Dubai. But then I'm thinking, as we're on this tour, the tour guide is explaining to us that this happened in the early 19th century. 
but the Palm Islands are relatively new. Did the Palm Islands creator get their ideas from Boston's filling process? The innovator that came up with the idea for Dubai's tourist attraction of the Palm Islands in the United Arab Emirates did it purely for tourism and aesthetic. And the first idea started in about 2001 and it started construction and coming to fruition over time and it's still not complete yet. So the technology or the idea of filling is what he is utilizing, but I don't know if he necessarily got the idea specifically from Boston's filling projects in Back Bay. Nonetheless, it has taken 20 plus years and it is still not completed. So it's still a feat and a process and huge innovation, even in in modern age. Now let's move on to the second thing that tickled our curiosity in terms of engineering while we were on our trip to Boston, the underground or underwater rather tunnels. This one's important because everybody in our family knows that my mom is severely afraid of overwater bridges. So the concept of underwater tunnels was completely new for us, and we had to understand how and why they were able to do this engineering-wise. Tunnels have always been a sense of mystery and intrigue, whether they're used for transportation, exploration, or even secret passages. To better understand how these remarkable feats of engineering were accomplished, I actually went onto a website or database that I often have my students use on Wonder Wednesdays called Wonderopolis, and I just typed my question in, and lo and behold, there was an article made specifically for this question. So the article from Wonderopolis that we'll be using is titled, How Do You Build a Tunnel Underwater? And I also utilized the Britannica Encyclopedia uh, search words tunnel. These sources shed light on techniques and challenges involved in constructing tunnels, constructing tunnels beneath water and solid ground. Building an underwater tunnel such as the famous channel tunnel that connects England and France requires a combination of expertise. Tunnel boring machines or TBMs are often used for excavating tunnels. These massive machines can bore through various types of soil, rock, and even underwater sediments. These sources explain constructing tunnels underground involves careful planning and consideration of geological conditions. Tunnel engineers must assess the stability of the surrounding soil or rock, and in some cases implement reinforcement measures to ensure the tunnel's integrity. Tunnels have played a vital role in transportation, infrastructure, enabling us to travel more efficiently and safely. They've also connected cities, countries, and even continents, opening up new opportunities for trade, tourism, and cultural exchange, which is what I think is important to the Boston area, as it was a major port from the colonial era until present day. Okay, okay, we get it. Underwater tunnels save the mountains from the trauma of overwater bridges. They are an engineering undertaking constructed with specialized equipment depending on the location and factors such as the depth of the water, geological conditions, and the specific design of the tunnel. But how exactly are they built? Short answer, it depends. Well, that just does not suffice for a curious mind, now does it? So, let's dig a bit deeper. Engineers look at the following factors. First is the feasibility study. 
Before construction begins, a feasibility study is conducted to assess the viability of the project. Factors such as geology of the seabed, water depth, and the potential environmental impacts are evaluated. Based on this feasibility study and the purpose behind the construction, for our purposes, transportation, teams then move on to the tunnel design, where engineers develop a detailed design plan for the underwater tunnel. Considering factors such as the tunnel's dimensions, alignment, structural integrity, and safety features, special attention is given to factors such as water pressure, wave action, and sedimentation. So there is a lot to take into account and to consider even prior to designing the tunnel itself. The next step, the third step, is preparing the construction site. This is kind of, I guess, where my curiosity was. I didn't understand how they got the water out of the way to put the tunnel in. And so this step kind of introduces us to the idea of how they are able to do so. So when they're preparing the construction site, the construction site is prepared by installing temporary structures such as cofferdams, which are watertight enclosures used to create a dry work environment. These cofferdams may be constructed using sheet piles or other methods to hold back the water. Or, depending on the findings of the feasibility study, they might choose to utilize a kaisen, which is a permanent structure that serves the same purpose but is not removed after construction. The fourth step is going ahead and starting the excavation process. The excavation process varies depending on geological conditions. Again, just like preparing the construction site, this is where we get the answer to our curiosity. Depending on the geological conditions, it may involve the use of drilling rigs, tunnel boring machines or TBMs, or other specialized equipment. The excavated material is typically removed through a conveyor system and transported on barges, which are large ships. The next step is bringing in the tunnel segment installation. Come to find out, most of the time these tunnels are built elsewhere and then brought in and put into place. So once the tunnel has been excavated, precast concrete tunnel segments are brought in and assembled to form the tunnel lining. These segments are often designed to interlock, kind of like a puzzle, to provide a watertight seal. These segments may be lowered into place using cranes or other lifting equipment. So after the segments are in, the next process is called tunnel backfilling and grouting. After the tunnel segments are in place, the gap between the tunnel lining and the surrounding seabed is filled with a mixture of cement and other materials to provide stability and prevent water infiltration. So basically, they fill any gaps that they created during excavation, as well as fill in any gaps that may have been created when they put the puzzle pieces together, when they put the segments together that may have not naturally created the watertight seal. Grouting may be also used to reinforce the soil around the tunnel. The final step is testing and finishing, where there are a ton of tests, ton of various tests are conducted to ensure the structural integrity, water tightness, and safety of the tunnel. This is probably the most important, especially the rationale as to why this is a curiosity for my family, being that my mom is afraid of overwater bridges 
Just the same, if you're underwater, water is still a threat to get into the tunnel and it could collapse the tunnel. So um, it, the, the structural safety and the integrity of the tunnel is imperative. So it goes through a lot of tests. These tests include pressure tests, leak detection, and structural analysis. Once the tunnel is deemed safe and functional, final touches such as road surfacing, lighting, and ventilation systems are installed. So the portion we see as we're driving through the tunnel is kind of the very last small grain of rice or icing on the cake to the tunnel. There's so much more to building the tunnel than the part we actually see when we're in the tunnel. Specifically on the east coast of the U.S., several underwater tunnels have been constructed using different methods. I have three examples of notable underwater tunnels, one of which is the tunnel we utilized on our Boston trip. The Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel in Virginia, completed in 1964, consists of a series of bridges and tunnels crossing the Chesapeake Bay. The tunnels were constructed using the immersed tube method. Large concrete tunnel sections, known as caissons, or tubes, were built on land and then floated into position. The caissons were then submerged and placed in a pre-dug trench on the bay floor. Finally, the gaps between the caissons were filled with sand and aggregate to create a stable structure. Another well-known tunnel that is utilized on the East Coast is the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, also known as the Hugh L. Carey Tunnel, which connects Brooklyn to Manhattan in New York City. This tunnel was constructed using a technique known as the Schild-Driven Tunneling Method. Tunnel boring machines, as we mentioned before, TBMs, were used to excavate the tunnel while simultaneously installing precast concrete segments as the tunnel progressed. The TBMs were operated from shafts at each end of the tunnel. The third one is the one that we utilized while we were in the Boston area, and that is the Ted Williams Tunnel. It's part of the Big Dig project. This tunnel is constructed using a combination of the cut and cover method and the immersed tube method, which we discussed before. Sections of the tunnel were built on land using the cut and cover technique, where a trench is excavated, the tunnel is constructed within the trench, and then the trench is backfilled. The immersed tube method was used for the section of the tunnel under the Boston Harbor, similar to the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. Large caissons were built on land, then floated into their position and submerged and placed in the pre-dug trench. Each project may have its own unique approach because of its different geological patterns, terrain, climate, what have you, the water depth and engineering requirements. So it's worth noting that advancements in tunneling technology and construction methods continue to evolve. So newer projects may utilize different techniques. So there you have it. Two of these East Coast phenoms that I was curious about from our Boston trip. They had nothing really to do with history and more about engineering. And I found it quite interesting how they came to be and how they are made. As always, thank you for tuning in to The Tick, the podcast of random thoughts that make our minds tick on end, tickle our curiosity, or may downright just tick us off. We would appreciate it if you like, subscribe, follow The Tick anywhere you get your podcasts. 
And if you listen to the tick on Spotify, there are two options that we started last episode, episode three. Spotify is now letting our listeners interact in two ways. The first way is through a poll, which is a multiple choice response. Last week, it was polling the audience on when your first memory took place. This week is a trivia question. And then the second option for interaction is the feedback option, or this is more of an open response where we ask you what is tickling your curiosity. We want to hear from you guys. Maybe you're curious about something that a lot of other listeners are curious about and that we can cover on the podcast for you. So if you are a Spotify listener, please interact in one of those two ways, in addition to liking and following our podcast channel. So without further ado, let's go over the results of last episode's poll. Last episode, we discussed memory. Thank you to all those that did participate in the poll and open response. I know that some of you found it was kind of tricky to find. So if you are on the Spotify app or you're listening to Spotify on your computer, you just need to select the episode number and then you can participate from there when you scroll down. Sometimes, depending on what browser you're using, you might have to listen to the whole episode first, and then you can participate in the poll or the open response. Nonetheless, the poll and open response are only available during the time frame that that episode is aired. So right now, you will only have access to answer the poll for episode four. Unfortunately, episode three's poll and response are no longer available. But nonetheless, episode three's results were quite intriguing. Of those that responded to the question, what age was your first memory? A third of our listeners say they were able to recall memories prior to the age of two. Another third said their earliest memory comes from between the ages of two to three. Then oddly enough, and what I'm truly curious about now, is nobody selected their earliest memory coming from ages of 4 to 10. That would traditionally be our elementary school years. And then the last third of us say that our earliest memory comes from early adolescence. Isn't that bizarre? I almost wish we could see the background information or context of what the memories were or why listeners can or cannot remember at certain ages. Anywho, something for you all to wonder about in the meantime. Who knows? Maybe this will be a curiosity in the podcast of the future. This week's poll is actually trivia. You can select as many answers as you see fit. But the question this week is, Boston was the start of the following within the United States. And of course, our continuing open response. What currently has you ticking? What are you curious about? Who knows? You might be our next guest speaker on the podcast or your curiosity might be featured as one of our curiosities on the upcoming episode. We'll chat with you again in two weeks. Have a great Independence Day. Bye.